Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. What about me? I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. A century ago, on November 18, 1922, Marcel Proust died. He worked feverishly in his final hours on his masterpiece, A la Recherche de Temps Perdu, In Search of Lost Time. His 4,000-page novel is one of the most remarkable works of literature of the 20th century. During the war in Bosnia, I plowed my way through its seven volumes, populated with 400 characters, not as an escape from the war, for the specter of death and the twilight of an expiring society haunts Proust's work, but as a way to reflect on the disintegration around me. Proust, like all great writers, gave me the words to describe aspects of a human condition I knew instinctively, but had trouble articulating. Proust understood the conflicting ways we perceive reality and come to our own peculiar, self-serving truths. He illuminated human folly with its illusions, ambiguities, and contradictions. He reminded his readers that empathy is the most important virtue in life, especially for the vulnerable. He explored the fragility of human goodness, the seduction and hollowness of power and social status, the inconsistency of the human heart, racism, especially anti-Semitism, and our looming mortality, which hovers over every page, as it did for the sickly Proust, as he struggled to finish his masterpiece, dictating changes on the last night he was alive in his hermetically sealed, cork-lined bedroom in Paris. Those who see in his work a retreat from the world are poor readers of Proust. For his power is his Freudian understanding of the unconscious and subterranean forces that define and shape human existence. There are very few writers who are his equal. Joining me to discuss Marcel Proust in Search of Lost Time is Justin E.H. Smith, a professor of history and the philosophy of science at the University of Paris. The main belt asteroid 13585 Justin Smith is named after him. You can find him on Substack at Justin E.H. Smith's Internet. So, Justin, the, the passage of time uh, haunts the novel, especially at the end. Uh, it exposes, as we age, as the characters age, the vanity of our youthful pretensions. Uh, I think this is true for most of the characters, including Burma, who's a thinly disguised Sarah Bernhard, abandoned by her admirers in her old age, or the main uh, courtesan Odette, the passion of Swan, and the Comte de Forcheville, who was once a beauty and a seductress who enchanted, certainly, male Paris, uh, is in the end relegated to the corner of her da- daughter's salon, uh, where she's ignored, even ridiculed, on Proust's rights about Odette, and this woman adulated and worshipped her whole life, now a human wreck in formal dress and grand toilet, looks out alarmed and bewildered at the ferocious social world and seems to me for the first time likable. So I wondered if you could address time, the passage of time, uh, and its effects, which is certainly one of the themes that is central to Proust's novel. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. I know you want to talk about Proust and philosophy later, but I think it's hard, at least for me, to talk about time without engaging at least a bit with the question of Proust's relationship 
to philosophy, in particular to the reflections on the nature of time as something experienced that are unfolding in the early 20th century, of which Proust is, I would say, vaguely aware, interested. I wouldn't call him a dabbler. I would call him a thorough reader who is also intelligent enough to seep, or no, to, to, absorb um, reflections from phenomenology, from figures like Husserl, from Henri Bergson's philosophy of time, and to translate this into something that, on the face of it, is a sort of autofiction. It's an autofiction, but it's also a philosophy of time. For me, that really only becomes clear, or the payoff really only uh, emerges in the seventh and final volume, Le Temps Retrouvé, the, the, the Time Regained, as we usually translate it. Uh, and this is, it's funny that you mentioned your coverage of the war uh, in Bosnia in the 1990s and your encounter with Proust uh, in the context of war, because for me, it's the ravages of World War One that are recounted in the seventh volume that really make us understand what it means for uh, the things we value to slip into the past and for our world to collapse. So obviously, throughout the previous six volumes, there are the, let's say, gentler ravages of time with um, La Berma uh, getting old and wrinkly, and of course, also the uh, several uh, little deaths of falling out of love with um, the people he has at least thought he was in love with. That's debatable, and we can get back to that. Uh, and also, of course, the more kind of signature moments of the the Madeleine and the tea and the un, 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 uh, unsolicited memories that come back to us that make us realize what's been lost. But Nothing makes this clearer than his kind of ghost-like stalking throughout Paris uh, when there are uh, 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 curfews uh, because of the air raids um, and uh, his sense that everything is really in the past. And of course, the real Proust, not the, the narrator, but the real Proust um, during World War I already surely has a sharp sense of his own declining health and his own, uh, let's say, near ghost status already. Um, so that's where it really comes through to my mind. And that's where we start getting le ton uh, capitalized uh, with a big capital T and his kind of, so to speak, discovery of time as something approaching a transcendent or divine, worshipable and awesome and terrible entity, right? Um, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the culmination of the previous six, uh, volumes. And one, that's one thing that's so striking about A La Recherche is the way that, um, that, that the, the, there's 
often for the most important themes, a very slow buildup. And that where, where you, you only realize the, the full depth or the full awesomeness of the theme he's exploring little by little. And that is above all the case with time. Uh, but we can talk more about this when we get back to philosophy. So let's just stay on that because there's two. When I read the last volume, they were like depth charges uh, mm -hmm. and you really needed everything that came before to get there. He talks a lot about masks. I think mm -hmm. death pervades the entire mm -hmm. novel. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, can you just address that issue of masks, uh, oh, sure. which, he, which, which he suddenly becomes cognizant of at the end? Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, it's especially haunting when we think of uh, Man Ray's famous photograph of Proust on his deathbed uh, when he's grown a long beard. Um, and, you know, he's very close to death and he has the, the uh, a face that looks um, very much, as Proust himself puts it, like Marcel Proust, the Assyrian, right? Kind of very dark, a very um, stark nose that looks like something sculpted in deep antiquity. And um, I don't know if Man Ray is trying to um, show in a visual form um, uh, this notion of mask that had become so important to Proust, uh, but it's uh, certainly uh, an important uh, uh, datum in our <laughs> reflection on Proust and masks, but also, of course, the example that you bring up of La Berma, the um, the 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 famous actress uh, modeled um, broadly on uh, Sarah Bernhardt. Um, who uh, is such a focus of Proust's or of the narrator's fascination and adoration in his youth. And of course, he already loses the fascination long before she has been relegated to a corner of her daughter's salon. Um, but uh, you know, he loses it when he goes, and this is one of my favorite scenes in the whole novel, when he watches her perfect gestures on stage and he contemplates the fact that there are parts of the actress's body, like, for example, between the wrist and the elbow over which the actress has no control. So this part of my arm cannot be transfigured by art, no matter how great a genius artist I am. And Proust sees this on the stage and uh, loses it, right? Basically, he thinks, why was I so impressed by La Berma? She's got a forearm just like I do. And it's such a weird thing to discover, or at least to articulate. But uh, Proust does it. And of course, this has something to do with this, the whole novel's long reflection on, let's say, the relationship between art and life. Ordinarily, you couldn't put a mask on a forearm. That's not the sort of thing that is masked, but it is still the sort of thing that shows the limits of transfiguration by art. And then when she is elderly and relegated to a corner of her daughter's salon and evidently overly made up as um, some 
old women who uh, are not going gently <laughs> into the good night often are. Um, this is literally a mask. It's cosmetics or mascara um, that are kind of uh, 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 showing the futility of the fight against uh, against time, and ultimately, I suppose, showing the futility of uh, trying, struggling to live in a world that is perpetually uh, uh, transfiguration in the name of art against death, right? Something like that. Well, he's constantly uncovering masks. I mean, he holds up from the beginning, the Germont, and he idolizes the elite, and these turn out to be very uh, banal, yeah. Uh, yeah. disappointing figures. I think there's an undercurrent of uh, disillusionment uh, yeah. that runs yeah. uh, constantly uh, throughout uh, yeah. the book. Um, yeah. I, we are going to have to talk about the Petit Madeleine. I, I, <laughs> I loathe mentioning it. It's the, yeah. sort of one thing you everybody do it. knows you about do it. Proust. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, this kind of unconscious, involuntary memory, uh, and it's not just with uh, Madeleine the tea, but there are yeah, many no. examples of this uh, that uh, evoke uh, the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I wondered if you could, uh, you know, th these kind of, these uh, dim fragments, these uh, brief uh, flashes of recognition mm -hmm. and, uh, in an mm -hmm. unexamined life, which keeps yeah. that life fragmentary, fragment, fragmented, yeah. unknown, yeah. devoid of context. Uh, mm -hmm. And I just wondered if, uh, how for Proust, uh, do we locate the past? How do we give it context? Uh, and then if you can talk about the importance of involuntary memory and illuminating the reality mm -hmm. of experience. I'm just going to read a little quote uh, oh, from yeah. Proust. Uh, quote, I find the Celtic belief very reasonable mm. that the souls of those we have lost are held captive in some inferior creature and an animal and a plant and some inanimate thing effectively lost to us until the day which for many never comes when we happen to pass close to the tree, come into possession of the object that is their prison. Then they quiver, they call out to us, and as soon as we have recognized them, the spell is broken. Delivered by us, they have overcome death, and they return to live with us. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's a lot, but maybe you can address those issues. Oh yeah, can can I say something first about unmasking the the last sure, the last sure. thing we were talking about? Yeah, I, I mean one of the most striking parts of the whole novel for me is uh, the scene when we know Swan is dying and he uh, comes to the home of the de Guermantes and the Duke and his wife Bazin and Oriane uh, are leaving for some social engagement and she's worried about which shoes to wear and basically he's trying to tell them he's dying and they're not going to see him anymore and they're just chattering back and forth about whether the shoes match the robe. Somehow I always picture that couple this is my kind of dumb American pop culture orientation as um, uh, uh, the Thurston Howell uh, and his <laughs> wife on, on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> um, and um, it's fascinating indeed the way uh, they are unmasked, taken down uh, so many notches from their early 
kind of exalted status. And this is why I really hate uh, the commentary by people like Maxime Gorky on Proust, who say that he is um, a slavish, uh, uh, adoring uh, 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 kind of um, uh, lackey of the aristocrats. Obviously, that's not all that's going on. This is more like an expose of how how base and petty these people are, just like all of us, right? It's definitely not any sort of class consciousness of the sort Gorky would like to see, but it's also not um, uh, 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 sycophancy towards towards the nobility. All right, so that's just one thing we can let, go let back me, to. Let me just stop you yeah. there on that scene, because for, first yeah. of all, Gorky ends up becoming... Uh, a kind of tool of Stalin. So, um, yeah. uh, uh, but he eviscerates the the ruling. I don't know how you can read yeah. Proust and not see that. I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't know. But <laughs> just that scene that you pointed out, because they dismiss him, and the way they mm. dismiss Swan is by saying, "Oh, you're not really that sick. You'll be fine." Yeah. And then right, they're right. saying, "Well, we have to go. We're in a hurry." Yeah. And then the she the 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 Duke sees that his wife's shoes don't match her outfit, and so <laughs> sends them back inside. Sends her back inside for a half hour to get another pair of shoes. So they're in the face of death. I mean, I think it, it kind of mm. uh, says it. Oh, I, like you, I found that scene haunting, but uh, let's address the other issues. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so I, I, I have to say, I mean, uh, it's not like I my interest in the novel trailed, but I think there's no more powerful part than the opening, maybe third of the first volume of the whole novel when he is a child and when he is very much a sort of animist um, describing the natural milieu of uh, Cambrai uh, and the flowers and the grass and the weather. And he is very, very good at evoking natural landscapes. Um, and it's in this connection, rather early on, that the uh, the the allusion to the Celts and their beliefs. I think this comes from uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, where there's some reflection on Druidic religion, and then it becomes a kind of commonplace in um, uh, French. Uh, history of ancient peoples of France that the Druids indeed, indeed, did indeed believe that we're um, reincarnated in trees. I see this a lot in 17th century texts. Um, but it's a way for Proust to um, kind of indulge this, uh, this uh, proximity to nature and also to pursue the themes of memory, right? And I I love the scenes in the early parts of the novel, particularly surrounding asparagus and right, right. the idea the idea that uh, that a stalk of asparagus is some kind of uh, nature sprite or fairy uh, that um, that is presumably rooted in northern French folk beliefs. Um, 
and that it's this uh, this supernatural entity in turn that causes the peculiar bouquet, as he would put it, in your urine some hours after you eat asparagus. Um, and it's such a, such an intense engagement with the smells and colors and and sensations of nature that he practically uh, goes metempsychotic himself and you know inhabits a tree for a while. I just love all that stuff. Um, and I think it's at its strongest in uh, the first volume, where he is, of course, a boy, and you're supposed to um, you're supposed to get over that when you get older and enter society. So he retreats from the intense engagement with nature as he becomes an adult and leaves behind childish things. Um, but in the particular uh, 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 sequence of images associated with uh, with the Celtic or druidic beliefs i think indeed um you know uh, uh the 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 idea seems to be that uh in this reduced state you have a dimmer sense of who you are and it has to be coaxed back out um in order for the ancestor to rejoin us and that in a sense uh to evoke this image of the soul uh, lodged in a tree is to uh, uh, give an account of the condition we are all actually in, where we, uh, you know, where we can scarcely hold on to our pasts, and they only come back to us in dim fragments. I mean, what's interesting is that they do come back to everyone in these mm-hmm. uh, a smell, uh, a sound, or something. Uh, but Proust, uh, and, you know, here maybe we can talk about art, that mm. those are, uh, while they can evoke the past, they are largely meaningless unless uh, we are able to interpret them through artistic expression. I don't know if you would yeah. agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right. And, of course, he covers uh, really all of the, let's say the the great arts um not just literature but also certainly music and painting these are leitmotifs of the whole novel and indeed they do seem to be uh the uh the kind of answer to the question what are these dim fragments of memory for anyway um well that can be catalyzed or sublimated into a great musical idea, like, for example, the the phrase in Vanteuil's sonata uh, that um, that seems to uh, hold the secret to our existence. So, indeed, uh, and we really get this towards the the very end of the novel, the seventh volume, again functioning as the payoff for so much of the long windedness of the whole thing. Um, uh, the the realization that that the narrator has of himself that he needs to conjure out of himself something as um, as as valuable as redeeming as Vanteuil's sonata um, in order to make these this this whole lifetime of dim fragmentary memories uh, uh, do anything for him at all. I want to talk about the, the mutation of the self, uh, mm-hmm. especially around grief. Uh, mm-hmm. Albertine, who he has a relationship with, uh, modeled after Han, uh, uh, mm-hmm. who was his driver, who was killed. 
mm-hmm. but but there's that lamentation, and, and of course, the death of his grandmother, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is probably modeled on the death of his mother, who was very, he had a, yeah. pretty much of a nervous breakdown after his mother died. Yeah. Um, but he, he, he doesn't fear grieving. I thought this was brilliant. He fears mm-hmm. the day he no longer grieves because the self that was once in love with those we lost no longer exists. I wonder if you mm-hmm. can talk about that. Sure. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the um, we already alluded to the the several small deaths, not the sense of orgasms, but in the sense of falling out of love uh, with Gilbert in particular, that uh, so much surprise him uh, that that make him really, I think, question the nature of love, uh, that you can fall out of love with someone and sit in a room with them and be like, oh yeah, I used to be in love with this person, um, makes it seem very, um, uh, um, uh, uh, fragile, um, and far from transcendental. Um, and that seems to worry him a great deal. At the same time, uh, it seems like uh, the love that he has for his grandmother is in some respects uh, of a different character than uh, these, uh, these, these various romantic loves that he has that the narrator has, um, and I don't. You know, I, I should I should say incidentally that I'm not a Proust scholar. Um, I'm a scholar of other things. Um, I and weirdly, since I started writing about Proust on Substack, um, I've had uh, journals send me requests to referee. Proust scholarship, <laughs> and I have to—I have to say, sorry, I'm not your guy. Uh, that's not my field. And in fact, for that reason, this helps to explain why I do not read secondary literature on Proust. Um, I don't want to read it. I think it would—I think it would uh, make me fall out of love, so to speak. It would—it um, would take away the magic if I—if I learned. Um, much more than I know about Proust's life. Um, I know uh, at least uh, that the uh, uh, female uh, love objects that are uh, that the narrator has are transformed versions of his own same-sex love love objects. That much I know, um, but I don't know exactly how the transformation is affected. What I can say is that Marcel Proust, uh, whatever his sexual orientation, is remarkably good at describing heterosexual <laughs> desire and obsession. Uh, he does. He's he's certainly capable of imagining his way into other people's desires. Um, So that's just a little parenthesis. Um, Now, uh, so this falling out of love uh, is something that, again, seems to be uh, what... um, you know what? I just read Mary Shelley, a lovely line. It's kind of a weaning from the things of this earth, and in that sense, a kind of uh, rehearsal for death. And I think the narrator sees it this way. Um, the question of whether the narrator ever experiences true love uh, or whether it's just um, 
obsession. And I, you know, certainly I, I find the narrator rather morally abhorrent, someone who really never figures some basic things out um, about how to be good to other people. I think the whole uh, fifth volume, The the Prisoner, is just is just shocking. No, it's just interject there, which essentially mm-hmm. Albertine becomes his, who's his yeah. lover, becomes his prisoner. Yeah, 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 and he's he's extremely sadistic um, <laughs> for no good reason, and doesn't seem to have any compunction about this. He doesn't seem to have any interest in his own moral growth, um, and you know, you might say that his uh, his attachment to his grandmother, and you know, having to knock on the wall, as an example you mentioned earlier, uh, having to knock on the wall of the hotel uh, so that she'll hear him in his room and feeling reassured when he hears her knock back, um, that's already a bit like the the relationship to Albertine, right? Um, and yet, uh, the, um, the the his love for his grandmother is, in many respects, uh, the 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 best thing he's got going. <laughs> um, and it is indeed very sad when she dies. Let me also add that there's another person towards whom the narrator is morally abhorrent, who I think is a really key figure for understanding the the whole novel. She's kind of the backbone of the novel, and that's Françoise, yeah. the, 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 the maid, yeah. the nanny, um, who is, uh, uh, of course, uh, 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 alive until the very end, witnesses it all, has a sort of wisdom that, um, that, that aristocrats can never have and that he can never have, and really, really holds things together. He's nasty to her, too, but I, you know, I think it's pretty clear he loves her. <laughs> Great. That was Justin E.H. Smith, professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Paris. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 